entrepreneurs tend to have an optimism, <laughs> and it may be unfounded, but sort of a boundless optimism. That's you know, what I found not only with me, but with my entrepreneur clients is that there is this sort of optimism that's inherent in entrepreneurs that one day we're going to make it right. It keeps entrepreneurs going. And it's a superpower in a lot of ways, but it can turn to kryptonite if we're not careful with ourselves. Welcome to Reinventing Perspectives. Today we have an amazing guest. We have Scott Anderson here. Scott, please tell us who you are and what's your mission. Oh, I love that question. I am Scott Anderson, and among other things, I'm a serial entrepreneur and a mental health therapist and an executive coach. But my mission is to help as many people as I can recover from burnout. That's my main mission today. When I was learning about what you do, how you said you work on the inner game just as much as you do the outer game. So this is going to be so good. Well, tell us, how did you get to this point? Well, it's been a long journey. I've been 30 years running businesses and selling businesses and became an executive coach. I started a not-for-profit organization to serve military families with post-traumatic stress disorder. And as a result of that, I went back to school, got a graduate degree in clinical counseling. And that's how I became a licensed mental health therapist. So my interest in burnout is twofold. I mean, part of it is I have a clinical interest in it, but I also went through it myself, went through a really horrible phase of burnout where the symptoms run true to form. And I found myself just like my clients, completely exhausted and all of my passion and motivation was gone and very hard to focus and almost impossible to get anything done. At first, I didn't know what was going on with me, despite my training and experience background and so on. I wasn't really clear on what was happening. So I started to research my own situation, just trying to find anything that might work or to sort of explain what I was going through. Fortunately, uh, this is why I'm writing a book called The Blessings of Burnout. You know, it was a horrible thing to go through, but now that I'm on the other side of it, it really is, there are blessings to it as well once you come out the other side. So you reach that stage and you understand that it's now burnout. What do you do? I mean, I just really started scrambling for answers. So anyone who has burnout will appreciate this. And, and mostly the people that I work with are business people and entrepreneurs who have a lot of responsibility, not only professionally, but in their homes and in their relationships, like most people. And one of the stages I reached and that most people reach in burnout is waking up in the morning and really wondering, am I going to be able to do it today? Am I going to be able to work? Am I going to be able to do what I need to do for my wife and my children and my family or not? Maybe I can't do it today. Maybe today is the day that I can't get out of bed or can't get off the couch. I've heard so many people talk about that. So in my case, really in desperation, I just tried everything I could find, anything I could find to just try to find some kind of a solution. And surprisingly, even though burnout resembles other mental health problems, it resembles anxiety in some ways, it resembles depression, it even resembles post-traumatic stress disorder in some ways, but it's none of those things per se. The World Health Organization has designated it as a bona fide mental health disorder, as has the American Psychiatric Association. And soon I think it'll be recognized worldwide as its own distinct disorder. But in my case, I just started to do as much research as I could. There are a couple of people in the psychology profession who have really made a career of studying a burnout going back to the 70s when the term was originally coined. It was used then to describe doctors and nurses in an emergency room setting. And by burnout, they meant that their passion had figuratively, I guess, burned out. 
and that they had become sort of numb and demotivated. Anyway, I started to study what turns out to be several decades of research about workplace burnout and was able to discover some best practices and tried them on myself. I was sort of a guinea pig for myself for quite a while. Uh, And as I started to recover, thank God, I have a number of clients, mainly business people and business owners, who are going through the same thing. And I asked them if they'd be willing to try some of these ideas. So they were kind of guinea pigs too. We discovered that group therapy is especially important because one of the symptoms of burnout is a feeling of complete isolation and disconnectedness. Group therapy is especially useful. So we started a face-to-face group that was very successful. And then later when it hit, we started Zoom groups, in part because our clients were all over the country and all over the world, but also to see if Zoom could work. And it worked actually even better than face-to-face groups did. One thing led to another, and now it's been five years since I recovered from my own burnout. And I'm really grateful to say that it's never returned. I've never had anything like that ever again. So I'm grateful to have stumbled into some things, grateful to my early clients for being willing to try some things. But when you're in burnout, you're pretty much sort of like the drowning man who wants anything that will keep him afloat. You're willing to do almost anything. That's pretty much the journey. And then today we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of business people all over the U.S., all over the world now, in Europe, in Australia, a couple in the UK, you know, it's really kind of exploded. And people use the word burnout, typically exchange it with like, oh, I'm so exhausted, I'm burnt out. And that's not the case. That's part of it. Exhaustion is one of the earliest symptoms, but it's the kind of exhaustion where a good night's sleep doesn't help, where even a vacation or a long weekend, let's say, doesn't help. In fact, we have a number of clients who have taken leave of absence, have even taken sabbaticals. We had one person we were working with who took a six-month sabbatical, hoping that that would result in a recovery from burnout, but it didn't do anything at all to the burnout. And it's kind of what you said at the beginning of the interview. It's really an inside job. Burnout may start somewhat on the outside, but ultimately it becomes an inside thing. Even after people who are in toxic or unjust or predatory work environments, even after they leave that environment, and they should, absolutely, we find that they still often have the symptoms of burnout, even though the environment that they were in is now gone. So ultimately we found that it's really an inside job and the recovery comes from the inside and a variety of techniques, which we've proven are very, very effective. Is there a way to sort of prevent this kind of burnout? There absolutely is. A lot of the techniques that we use to help people recover are, in fact, very helpful in preventing burnout in the first place. Again, I always want to be quick to say, if you're working in an environment where you're being treated unfairly or unjustly in a discriminatory environment or, you know, anything like that, then you should get out. You really owe it to yourself to get out. But what we're talking about, assuming that it's a sane, humane, reasonable work environment, then there definitely are some things that you can do to prevent it. And it's a lot of the same techniques that people use to recover, but they're counterintuitive. That's the thing I really found about them. I'll just share one technique or one sort of concept, at least in the U.S. uh, Hopefully it's not this way in Tasmania or the Southern Hemisphere, but in the U.S., the expectation is that you work for 50 weeks and then you get two weeks of vacation or one week of vacation. The assumption is that that week will be enough for you to recover from the stress and from the physical fatigue of working. Or even a long weekend would be enough. Or even just one good night's sleep. 
but that's not how the body responds to stress. When you accumulate 50 weeks of stress, and that's really what burnout is, is just unrelenting, unrelieved stress over a long period of time, and the body tends to shut down. So the key in both recovery and prevention, this is a little bit oversimplified, but it's true, that the key is to release stress instead of waiting for the end of the day or for the weekend or for the vacation, to be releasing stress throughout the day continuously. If you think about an athlete training for the Olympics, they would know that the training period is important, but the recovery period is just as important. The recovery allows us torn muscles to heal and build more muscle, and that's how we become more and more muscular. But it's the recovery periods that are really essential. And it's the same way with us psychologically in stressful work situations, for example, that unless we have the opportunity to recover and recover frequently during the day, the stress, in fact, does sort of pile up and pile up. A lot of people kind of get into a stressful work environment. They sort of take a deep breath when they go into work and then maybe exhale at the end of the day. What all of the research indicates is that continuous releasing of tension throughout the day, even if only for five or 10 seconds every hour, is the preferred method and that will, in fact, prevent burnout. But the key is really to be aware of how much stress you hold and to release it completely throughout the day. And there are a number of techniques that are very useful in doing that. You know, sometimes people think, well, I'm going to have to meditate. I don't have time to meditate or I can't meditate. But there are a number of very, very simple mindfulness exercises that take as little as five or 10 seconds to do if we practice them completely multiple times during the day. That's a really great health and wellness tip that you just gave us there. Like you said, people often say, oh, I'm just going to work until my vacation. That's often the mindset. I'm just going to hold yes. on until my holiday. That's right in two weeks or my holiday in two months. It makes sense, except that it's just not the way the body responds to stress. The mind, body, and spirit don't respond to stress that way. There's a professor at University of California at Berkeley who is pretty well regarded as the expert worldwide in burnout. And her name is Christina Maslach, who is just a brilliant, brilliant woman and has done 40 years worth of research into burnout. One of the things that she talks about, an expression she uses, she calls it sprint as marathon. And unfortunately, Fortunately, this is the way a lot of jobs are, perhaps not in Tasmania, I hope not, but certainly in the U.S., there was a time in the American workforce where there were sprints of work followed by periods of some recovery. But today, and really since the Great Recession in 2008, the levels of productivity are very, very high in, you know, certainly North America. But the problem is that there is this sort of condition we work in, a sort of sprint as marathon, that we're constantly working at a sprint level. Levels of productivity are very high. That's a good thing for business, but it's not a good thing for the mind, body, and spirit. Because you're a resilient entrepreneur, and our audience is early entrepreneurs. I'm going to pick your brain a little bit if you'll allow me to, Scott. <laughs> Sure, please. Since we're on the topic of stress, what kind of things can you do sort of to protect your mental health? Just against things like maybe constant rejection, trying things and continuously failing, trying to kind of keep things going and persevere. Like, how did you work through that? Right. Well, you know, part of it is that entrepreneurs tend to have an optimism <laughs> and it may be unfounded, but sort of a boundless optimism. And that's what I found in not only with me, but with my entrepreneur clients is that there is this sort of optimism that's inherent in entrepreneurs that one day we're going to make it, right? And keeps entrepreneurs going. It's a superpower in a lot of ways, but it can turn to kryptonite if we're not careful with ourselves because 
we do need to recover, as I mentioned earlier. One of the other things about successful people generally, I found, again, it's a superpower, really. It's really positive characteristics, but they can kind of go bad on us. So, for example, a lot of the people that I work with, and I'm kind of like this, I guess, are ultra, ultra responsible people. And this is one of the reasons why they like being an entrepreneur, because they like to have ultimate power and control over what they're doing. They're typically not very good delegators because they would rather do it themselves. You'll hear them say, it's easier for me to just do it than to explain to you how to do it, that kind of thing. It can be very, very effective, especially when starting a business, to have this large sense of responsibility. But on the other hand, it ultimately can result in burnout if you feel as though you have to do everything. And it also prevents the business from scaling. If you're doing every job there is, then you're probably not leveraging your skills in a way that's going to grow the business. If you have this sense of ultra responsibility and do it by yourself, sort of a strong independent streak. That's what gets entrepreneurs going and that's what starts businesses and it's a wonderful thing. But there's also a potential downside to it. The other thing I found with me and with a lot of entrepreneurs is that, and one of the reasons we often want to do it ourselves is because we have a kind of a perfectionistic streak to us and things have to be done a certain way for us to feel comfortable. And again, that can be a superpower and it can lead to very high quality of work, but it's also impossible to do anything perfectly. Of course. And so we can kind of lead to our own burnout and to our own exhaustion. And also after a while, if your standard is perfection, then you're going to fail every time. And ultimately, even for the most optimistic entrepreneur, you know, a certain amount of failure is going to feel like real defeat. So it's difficult sometimes for entrepreneurs who like doing it themselves and who often live in a vacuum and don't have very much feedback. It can be very useful to be in a mastermind, such as our mastermind is one, for example, so that you're comparing notes with other entrepreneurs and have context for what you're doing. But again, entrepreneurs tend to work in a bit of a vacuum and think perfection is possible sometimes or insist on perfection. That's a sure way to burn ourselves out. If we set the bar at perfection, we are going to disappoint ourselves and be disappointed a lot when it's really not necessary. What do you think has been the skill sets that you've used over and over again in how you do business? When you're starting out, you think you need to learn this, you need to learn that, you probably need to skill up on this. Yes. The number one skill, the most important, and it's more of a mindset, I suppose, but it's a skill also, is to listen. I found that if I will simply listen to what my market wants, to what my customer wants, to what my client wants, to what the economy needs, that kind of thing. If I'm willing to really devote myself entirely to make it about them. One of my earliest business partners, his mantra was make it about them. It's just so important to remember. And when I do that, I can't go far wrong. When I'm listening to the people I'm trying to serve and when my entire motivation is genuinely to serve, you know, to help others, as entrepreneurs, we tend to have a fair amount of ego. Again, it can be a superpower, but it can also make us a bit myopic and lose sight of people we're trying to help or the industry we're trying to serve. So I really think that's been the most useful overall is to keep coming back to listening and to make it about them. We can't go far wrong if we're serving someone's genuine need and serving it in a excellent way. We're bound to be successful, at least to some degree, if we remember to do that. That's so important. Thank you for saying that, because a lot of times it's our ideas of what we think people would need. Yes. Sometimes you can make that mistake of thinking people need something and nobody needs it. Exactly. 
Exactly. So I've had a couple of just business disasters. One of them was that I got into a low-carb diet phase. This is several years ago. And I found it was very successful. It was a trend at one point. It's kind of come and gone over time. But I was convinced that what the world really needed was what I personally wanted. And that was a store that had exclusively low-carb things, foods. And unfortunately, number one, it was a passing fad. It's come and gone several times. And number two, I didn't bother to ask anybody. In fact, I started a store was called a low-carb superstore, and all it had was low-carb things. It was a disaster. It's a complete disaster. The disasters that I've had, the failures that I've had in business have mainly been from being myopic like that and being in love with my own ideas, not listening, and really not caring, you know, being so in love with my own big idea. That is a recipe for failure. How did you pick yourself up after that? You see that something isn't working, but the optimism in you wants to keep pushing forward. But at some point, yes. you've got to, you know, be like, okay, this is over. How do you even pick yourself up to try to do this again? It's this boundless optimism and also a real need to build things and create things. And this is the danger because most entrepreneurs have that drive, whether it's in their DNA or wherever they get it that desire to create and build new things. And that desire is very selfish. It's very personal. And so we can easily get into trouble if we make it about, again, if we make it about us instead of make it about the audience, the people we're trying to serve. I really do think it's genetic entrepreneurship. And as far back in both sort of branches of my family, there are entrepreneurs as far as the eye can see, uh, farmers and ranchers and businessmen and shopkeepers and people that started their own businesses. Going back to my ancestors that came from Ireland and Sweden and Germany to the United States were all entrepreneurs. And so I think a bit of it is DNA. My grandfather started was either five or six businesses that completely failed before he finally started one that was a big success. And you know, the question you're asking is really a good one. How did he dust himself off from five, not one failure, but five failures? I had a mentor who was trying to raise money for ultimately his biggest, most successful business. And he had a hundred banks tell him no. And it was the 101st bank that said yes. How did he keep going? Having the hundredth bank tell me no, I think I would have been tempted to say, forget it. A lot of it is this just persistence and perseverance gene. Maybe it is genetic. It can result in great success, but it can also drive you to horrible failure, especially if we don't keep our eye on who we're trying to help. 101. Right? The yes came. How did he do it? Yeah. And I spoke with him. He was a really important mentor of mine. And in his case, failure was never an option. He never even considered it. He was going to keep going. He would have gone to 200 banks or 500 banks. So I think it's in the genes. That's real persistence. How do you break through a sales plateau? At least what I try to do is two things. First of all, is to take all of the yucky sales feeling, even the best salespeople who have a little ambivalence about sales because of bad sales experiences that we've had or about the reputation of sales. or And, you know, again, for me, the answer really is to two things really work for me. One of it is to completely try to shake all of that off and get back to all I'm trying to do is help people. That's all. 
And either I can help them or I can't help them. And if I can't, then I'll talk to the next person. But if my attitude really is exclusively about can I help this person or not, that really does help me. You know, the thing with sales, as you know, is that people can feel whatever's going on with you. And no matter what words you say, there is a communication of energy and people pick up your energy. And if your energy is about getting something for yourself, doesn't matter what words you say, they pick up that energy. I've coached a lot of salespeople, and what I always recommend for people in a slump is for the next several calls, focus on loving the person that you're talking to. Treat them the way they would treat your closest friend or family member, and try to reorient, essentially. Change the GPS. But again, it's very much like what I was saying about burnout, is to change the orientation from me to them. That really helps. The other thing that I found helps is to really be focused on, I've heard it called the doctor's frame. Or in other words, be talking to people as if you were a doctor trying to find out whether, let's say you're a heart doctor, and you're talking to somebody to see whether you can help them. In that case, you're not trying to sell them on open heart surgery or bypass surgery. You're trying to determine, can I help them? Do they have a condition that I can genuinely help resolve? You know, anything that takes the yucky selfishness, that's what I found happens to most people who have sales plateaus is that they're not aware of it, but it creeps in subconsciously. And every sale they don't get, the creepiness of I've got to get this next sale creeps into their energy. The fastest way, I think, is just to love the person you're talking to and treat them the same way you would treat your mother, let's say. And that really changes the energy. Intensity of that yuckiness, the more you don't get the sale that you're after, probably works yes. Works against you. And really, it is a lot about energy. What should you consider to begin scaling for growth? You're a new entrepreneur, you've just started your business, revenue is coming in, and you're not yet ready to scale, but what should you be thinking about? And again, I don't want to be a broken record, but it really goes back to how can I serve my customer in an exceptional way that they'll tell other people about? To have not just a ordinary experience, but to have an exceptional, really special experience that they'll tell their friends and neighbors about. That's you know number one. Number two, then, once we've sort of got the ball rolling, is to think about, because again, the tendency for the entrepreneur is to want to do everything, both out of perfectionism and a desire to control and get things done. But what entrepreneurs always have to do, in my view, is ultimately, once their business begins to run, is to think about what their effective hourly rate is. There's a guy in Australia, actually, named James Shramko, who's written a book about this. He calls it effective hourly rate. The idea is what your income is or what you want it to be. And let's say that it's $100 an hour US. And from that perspective, you shouldn't be doing any task that anyone else can be doing better, faster, or cheaper. You shouldn't be doing $20 an hour tasks if your effective hourly rate is $100 an hour. So the key is to actually do less and less. And for the things that you do to be only those that have super high impact and to systematize or otherwise outsource or delegate everything else, it's a very hard discipline for entrepreneurs to get because they want to control everything, of course. But that really is the key. Thank you so much for that. Now, what is the number one book that has made a really huge impact on you as an entrepreneur, Scott? Funny, this isn't an entrepreneurial book per se, although it was written by an entrepreneur. But it's a book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. As it happens, Michael Singer, in addition to being a, a spiritual guy, he created the electronic medical records industry pretty much by himself. and had a billion dollar business before he sold it. But this book, The Untethered Soul, is really about getting along with ourselves, especially as entrepreneurs, to 
reach a level of peace inside. As I said earlier, it's all an inside job. So Untethered Soul by Michael Singer is the most important book that I've read in a long time. Our last question is always, what has faith been to you on your journey, Scott? Oh, everything, right? And as an entrepreneur in particular, I mean, that really is the fuel. I have a mentor who reminds me every day I get to choose between fear and faith. And I can either live my life filled with fear or I can live my life filled with faith. And I must make that choice every day. It helps me to think about that choice because otherwise, unconsciously, I'm apt to default to living out of fear. So that's what it means. It's everything. It's a discipline also. Now to our audience, if you could go to www.doubledareyou.us, what will they find there, Scott? Yes. <laughs> well, they'll find out a lot of things about my coaching practice. And also, if they'd like to know about our burnout recovery process, they can go to burnoutbreakthrough.com. We have a free masterclass on how you can recover from burnout, how you can prevent burnout. Yes, either one would be great. I think what you'll find mainly is a lot of the themes that we talked about today, but it's all about, as entrepreneurs, how we can scale our businesses, but also not lose our sanity and not lose our souls. The drive to achieve can sometimes backfire badly. So well said. Thank you so much, Scott, for your time and thank you for your expertise. Thank you so much, Priscilla. If you got any value out of today's episode, please do me two massive favors. One, please share it with someone that you know would benefit from this information. And secondly, please leave us a review in your podcast listening app. This will help us grow the show and get bigger and bigger guests that will benefit you even more. Thank you so much for that. And again, thank you for your time. I absolutely value your time. Thank you for spending time with us listening to the Reinventing Perspectives podcast. Thank you and see you again next week. <laughs>